Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these pandemic times, the pandemic of COVID-19 and the centuries-long pandemic of white supremacy? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christian folks talking to other white Christian folks about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. For the next several months on the podcast, we're going to be thinking with you about freedom. The lectionary selections over this stretch of what's called ordinary time, though these are hardly ordinary times, Follow the origin stories of the people of Israel from Abraham all the way through the Exodus to the arrival of the people in the Promised Land. It's a huge narrative arc of journey stretching from Genesis to Joshua. It's a journey of wrestling, of oppression, of liberation, of mistakes and harm, all with lessons to teach us about freedom. In these very much not ordinary times, where the possibilities of getting free from violent systems like policing are close enough to taste, we want to ask, what does it mean to be free? What does it even take to be free? Is freedom an individual or collective something, or maybe both? What do we need to be free from? What do we need to be free for? We're calling this series Hashtag Journeys to Freedom, and we're glad to have you along. We begin our series with brothers Jacob and Esau, already three generations into this long journey of a narrative that actually began several weeks ago 
with the story of Abraham and Sarah leaving what they knew as home for a place God would show them. We hear the story of Hagar and Ishmael, enslaved to Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac, Sarah's son born in her elder years. These are the origin stories, if you will, of the people of Israel, who and what they come from. They are messy and complicated stories. The characters revered in the faith do not always act in ways that are kind or liberating or even truthful. And so it should not be entirely surprising that the story of Jacob and Esau begins also messy and complicated. We join the story after Abraham and Sarah have died in Genesis chapter 25. The story of Jacob and Esau begins like this. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Heck of an origin story, right? Two brothers fighting so hard in the womb their mama wants to die, fighting so hard Jacob is still grabbing onto Esau's heel when they are born, refusing to let go of this conflict, an inborn conflict that includes Jacob tricking Esau out of his birthright. This origin story is supposed to explain the much later tension between the nations of Israel and Edom, even while recognizing that the peoples of both were deeply related, as close as twin siblings. 
Edom being the nickname of Esau, and, spoiler alert, Israel the name given to Jacob, well, later on in this story, so stay tuned. It's an origin story that's rooted in conflict, and this will not be the end of conflict or harm or betrayal in this story. It's an origin story that honestly seems to excuse that conflict as if it were inevitable because God said so to Rebecca, Rivka. And what more is there to say? When I first read this story, preparing for this episode, my initial response was, ugh, why? Why is there this story excusing harm? I wanted to talk back to this text, wanted us to think together about what it might mean to imagine different origin stories, more benevolent stories about people making good choices, stories about what might have been, could have been for Jacob and Esau if their origin story were different, what that could tell us about freedom and needing to tell different stories to get us free. I got a little mad, actually, because I really, really wanted a different story. But that's not the story we've got. Why, then? Why is this the origin story? Conflict so painful the mama wants to die? So I sat with this story and watched the world around me. You may have noticed we're in a time of deep contention over the origin story of this continent. Statues of Confederate generals are being pulled down, Columbus statues tossed into bodies of water, Confederate flags being banned by NASCAR, statues of colonizers like Don Juan de Oñate having their hands cut off. You should Google why that's so powerful. Meanwhile, white people continue defending racist symbols as heritage and history, or complaining that it's erasing history, or just generally expressing discomfort with smashing symbols as a form of protest. And the president is giving violent speeches on the sites of massacres like in Tulsa and in Hesapa, the seven grandfathers currently called Mount Rushmore. And he's calling for prosecution of people who tear down statues. Oh, and Disney Plus started streaming Hamilton. Oh, and just three days ago, it was the 4th of July, Independence Day, Freedom Day. Freedom for who? For what? Anyway, contention. Deep, deep contention. And I think part of the reason we're in this time of contention is because in dominant U.S. culture, which is to say the white dominant culture, we do not tell the truth about our origin story. Our origin story and all the stories that come after. We are taught a benevolent story about white people who love freedom, who are pioneers and explorers, who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make something of ourselves as we eat the red, white, and blue stuff of the American dream. And all our leaders are heroes and lost causes are recast as heroic struggles for a state's rights to be free. For whom? For what? And all their generals are sainted as gentlemen 
No, really, I wrote that paper when I was a teenager. How Robert E. Lee, after whom five generations of men in my family are named, was a gentleman and a quiet hero, and wasn't it too bad he fought on the losing side of the war, but he was too honorable, loved his home state too much, and he didn't enslave that many people, and he freed them all when he died, and he loved his horse. So what a good man we can all emulate. Yes, I wrote that. Something along those lines, anyway. It was a long time ago, but yeah, I wrote that. Ninth grade. And it only literally just occurred to me as I'm saying this, that yes, it was terrible that I wrote that, which I knew that much. Eventually I understood that much. But also it was terrible that nobody at the time told me this was terrible. My parents didn't and my teacher didn't. My teacher, my northerner teacher, did not tell me it was not okay to sanctify a white supremacist who chose to fight to ensure enslavement continued and who refused to free the people he enslaved until he himself was actually dead. We do not tell the truth about the violence in which this nation was born and with which it is perpetuated. Enslavement, colonization, genocide, theft of land, theft of bodies, and enforcement bodies like police and border patrol and military and Indian agents all to assure it all keeps running. That benevolent story is so tempting. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It sets us up as the good ones. And anyone who rejects that benevolent origin story, who pulls down that statue and tosses it into the sea, literally or metaphorically, they must be bad, ungrateful, violent, un-American. And for us white Christians, we get to add an extra layer of goodness into this benevolent origin story because to be good is to be Christian, to be a good American is to be Christian. We want that story. We want that story, that benevolent origin story about freedom and goodness. But that's not the story we've got. Which brings me back to Jacob and Esau, born in conflict, wrestling their way out of the womb. Maybe we want a different story, a good, benevolent origin story. But maybe, maybe that's the wisdom here. Maybe the wisdom for us here is that in this origin story, the storytellers tell the truth. These are not perfect, polished heroes on sanctified pedestals. These are flawed, ridiculous humans who lie and cheat and harm who make the same mistakes generation to generation, and whose conflict runs deep enough it seems destined to be latched onto their heels forever. That's the origin story we're given of the people called Israel, beloved and chosen by God. And my point is not so much that this origin story tells the truth that humans are a total mess, which, I mean, we are, of course. No, my point is telling the truth about our origin story makes possible a future with more freedom. Telling the truth about our origin story makes possible 
a future with more freedom. Because telling the truth liberates our imagination to not only dream up whole new worlds, but also dream up better ways to build them. Now we have weeks and weeks to explore what happens next with Jacob and his descendants. And so I want us to hold on to this question as we move through this long journey to freedom. What does telling the truth about our origin story make possible? What space in our imagination gets opened up when we tell the truth? Yes, we need new stories about who we are meant to be, what kind of future we can have together. We do. That's part of what we do on this podcast, after all. We need new stories that aren't rooted in racist, capitalist, punitive, cis-hetero narratives, which is to say white definitions of what it means to be human and the role of divine activity in creation. We need opened up imaginations about who we can become. And to do that, we need to tell the truth about how we got here. All those efforts to remove statues, tear down Confederate flags, change holidays, all those folks tearing down sanctified golden lies to white supremacy, they're truth tellers. That work is part of what is needed to free us from these systems of oppression. Not all the work, but an important part of it. Otherwise, we're worshiping a lie. Or we'll get to that story in a few months. Part of what it takes to be free is to tell the truth. That's what the story of Jacob and Esau can teach us. But truth-telling isn't always comfortable. Just like my initial response to their origin story, wanting instead something good and benevolent and nice, we may find we have our own resistance to the truth-telling happening right now. So the first thing I invite you to do as a call to action is to explore whatever discomfort you're feeling in this truth-telling movement moment. What is challenging you, unsettling you? Where does that live in your body? Because notice that origin story lives in literal bodies, in Rebecca's womb, in the fist clenched to heal, in the belly full of red stuff. What does your body have to teach you about this truth-telling and what's needed to unclench our fists and release into freedom? The second thing I invite you to do is check out the new federal legislation that was announced on July 7th by the Movement for Black Lives, the BREATHE Act. You can go to breatheact.org or check their social media. The BREATHE Act divests resources from incarceration and policing and invests them into community safety and other efforts that will allow Black lives to flourish. As the Movement for Black Lives puts it, the BREATHE Act is the civil rights legislation of our times. 
And I mention it here not only because it's just been released, but also because it is rooted in telling the truth about our origin story in order to build a future that is more free for everyone. Freedom to flourish and to thrive. So check it out. Share about it. And watch for resources from Surge about how we as white folks can take action to pass this historic legislation. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you by if uh, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. And we'd love to hear from you and especially from folks of color or non-Christian folks who may be checking us out about how we're doing. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Jean Jeffress. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor for this week, Maxwell Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.